The scripture reading this morning is found in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, through chapter 2, verse 4. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, Ezra, my son Ezra came home last night, and he was coming down with a cold, and so Anne-Marie kept him uh, and on her home this morning to um, sleep in. The, the start of the school year has been hard, and she wanted to make sure that he has enough energy to, to go. So they send their love, but they're at home resting this morning. We have been taking a look at Paul's letter to the Philippian church, and we've been thinking about what being rooted in Christ means to our joy. It brings us a steadfast foundation, a bedrock of joy that we are firmly established uh, upon. And this week we come and look at uh, this particular part of the passage, 127 through 2.4. It is overly abundant. It's very rich. And so what we're going to try to do is take a few things from it, but we're not exhausting it this morning. And remember, too, that in the home meetings, what we're doing is we're tracking along with the passages that we're studying on Sunday so that you can, um, that you can unpack it a little further in your groups together. But let's start this way. Last week, I saw the Eagles and Steelers game. I'm, I'm from Pittsburgh originally. You have to know that. Uh, I grew up in Pittsburgh in the 70s, and how can you not stick with the Steelers when the 70s were so good for them? Anyway, (laughs) members of each team were all working together, and they were equally intent on winning the game. The Eagles worked together to put pressure on the Steelers through a tremendous drive near the end of the game. They really, they put it over the top, and they were ahead, and and it it was pretty unnerving for Pittsburgh. And yet the Steelers also responded with a tremendous drive of their own and won the game in the last few seconds. Our subject this morning is that the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ unites us in profound ways. We're going to look at how the gospel of our Lord Jesus unites us in spirit, in heart and mind, in action, and in faith. In spirit, heart and mind, Action and faith. Okay, in spirit, we are in Christ. Paul uses that language again. We're in Christ, and we are encouraged by that. 
verse 2, or verse 1 of chapter 2 says there's encouragement in Christ. Right? So what that means is that we're resting in Jesus and what he's done. There's encouragement that you experience. When you come to know Jesus, God through faith and what he's done on your behalf, there's encouragement that you experience as a Christian. And this is referring to the benefits of our salvation. Did you know there are benefits to being saved? This refers to the benefits of our salvation through the cross of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. I was at a, uh, I was at a lecture. It was Socrates in the City in Manhattan. And it was a lecture that Tom Wright was speaking at. He's a New Testament scholar. And he was talking about being surprised by hope. It was a book that he's written, and he gave a lecture on that. And that's the idea that Christians had lost over the centuries a, a, a key part to getting out of the bed in the morning as a Christian, which is that there is a hope beyond what we see. There is a new heavens and a new earth coming, and that we will uh, fully participate in that. That one day, when God wipes away every tear, that it's not just rest that we get. Shalom means much more than that. It means that when we put our hands to do things to glorify God and to, and to flourish in his kingdom, that it's no longer by the sweat of our brow that we put our hands to tasks. That we will put our hand to something and our mind to something and it will flourish. It will unfold as it's meant to. So he's talking about that hope. And there was a friend who was really struggling in his faith and belief at the time who stood up. And he said, okay, but here's the thing. Right? It's like I've got a uh, 67 Chevy, and it's, uh, it's totaled. It's a wreck. It won't even drive. Why not just put it in the junk heap and hope for a new car in the last day? And Tom Wright responded, he said, wait, you misunderstand the Christian's hope. You're locked into this world, this time, this frame, this suffering, the things that you see. But the reality is that heaven's much more like, and he, he likened, Tom Wright likened it to a cathedral that was in Durham. He was Arch, Archbishop of Durham for a number of years uh, in England. And this cathedral took several generations to build, and it was gorgeous. It was beautiful. And so not one, pers- not one team of workers who was alive lived to see the entire thing finished. But there were a few who were alive after it was finished who were able to look back and say, hey, That stone is my stone. I crafted that. I had my hand on that. You see, there's continuity between what will be and now. It's not just that we give up here and we trash our car in the the junk heap and hope for a new one. It's that the very car that we have now will be actually made new, be made more of a Chevy than it was meant to be originally. We will flourish in a new way. Um, how do you know that? It's the Spirit of God himself who unites us. Verse 28, our unity shows that our salvation is from God. We have a salvation from God. Paul says in Ephesians that what we have is not by works so that nobody can boast, that it's a gift of God. So our unity is in that our salvation is from God, that we have a hope that's bigger than ourselves. That what gets us out of the bed in the morning is that the Lord will make everything right that has gone wrong. And then we put our hands to things. It will glorify him as we're meant to do. 
So as such, we're to live and grow together in the good things which are ours in common to possess in Jesus. We're to grow together in the good things that we have in Jesus. That's part of our unity. Uh, Our unity in the Spirit means the same thing, that we work together so that our public and private behavior, our public and private behavior matches up to the gospel of the King. What we do, who we are, behind closed doors and out in public, matches the gospel of the King. When that happens, conviction follows, not only for those who believe, but also for those who don't believe. You understand that for centuries, even from the first century Mediterranean world to the 21st century China or the Sudan, there have been many people, many forces, who oppose the gospel vigorously and often violently. And in the post-Christian West today, the forces of cynicism and skepticism are extremely powerful, especially in the newspapers and television. Extremely powerful. But the word for frightened in verse 28 denotes this. The word for frightened in verse 28 denotes this. Uncontrollable stampede of startled horses. It's that kind of frightened. But Paul says don't be. He says that if you're in Christ, if your hope is rooted in the fact that he's going to renew all things, he's going to turn things new from the inside out, that you are to show a rock-like immobility simply because you're united with others in him. Now think about this for a second. A position of true unity in the gospel brings conviction for those who don't believe and conviction for us who do. Brings conviction no matter where you're at in your spiritual journey, as Glenn was talking about. The world rises up in a display of opposition designed to put the church to total rout. But the church responds with a rock-like immobility simply because it's a united church. Your ability to stand your ground is because you're united. I think about um, one of the great gifts that Pixar has given to parents <laughs> is, is their movies. And so there are, uh, there are movies like Wally and Bugs Life and things like that. And uh, Bugs, they're great movies. And one of the things that you'll see in Wally, for example, is that Wally and Eva are united with this small team of robots to make humanity what they're supposed to be again. But it's only through this ragtag team of small cogs in the wheel that the grandeur of who the human race is supposed to be comes out. The world rises up in a display of opposition designed to put the church to rout, but the church responds simply because it's united. It responds strong, united. Paul was addressing the local church and affirming that the power of a united local congregation will prove to be just what he promises. You remember Jesus prays for this. Jesus prays. He says, Father, I pray that they may all be one. So what? So that the world may believe. So there's something about the way that we're united in the Spirit, the way that our hope is latched onto the gospel and the way all things will be made new that will show as a sign not only to ourselves but to those who are searching spiritually. Let those united in the gospel, let us face the world from a position of true unity and conviction of the truth of God's work in the gospel will follow whether you believe or not. So that's unity in the spirit, but we also have unity of heart and mind. 
We have unity of the spirit. We have unity of heart and mind. The word mind here, verse one mind, verse 27, means unity of heart and mind. The word translated mind refers to the sphere of affections or moral energies. It points to what we feel about things and how we react to them. It raises the question of what we consider valuable, what we consider important in life, a worthwhile objective. And the answer for how to do this must be focused on something other than ourselves. That something is Jesus Christ, our Lord, the King, the Lord, and the good news which he's come to take over the world in his name. You know the word gospel? means that. It's this herald. It's the herald of something life-changing news of momentous proportion. Jesus has come to take over the world. And so with our focus on him, we're to be united in what we feel about things and how we react to them, what we consider valuable and what constitutes a worthwhile objective in our lives together. How does this happen? Well, 2.1 says we have the affection for one another and our affection reaches out towards one another in sympathy. We identify deeply with one another. So there should be a growing sense of love together as we live life together, as we live in our home meetings together, as we see life unfold for each other. We should know what's going on for one another and our love should grow. There should be a growing sense of love. Now look, unity without mutual love, common interests and agreed values could be as a cold as a marriage, one of the old arranged marriages of old. Right? Imagine, imagine a marriage without mutual love. Imagine a marriage without common interests. Imagine a marriage without agreed values. You're working against one another. And so is so it's the same thing for us if we work together without loving one another more and more deeply. We have to be united in heart and mind. So we have to be united in spirit, heart and mind, but we also have to be united in action. Why? Again, verse 2-1, we've been made into a fellowship by God's Spirit, and we live together in fellowship. God's Spirit lives within Christians. God's Spirit lives within Christians, directing them, strengthening them, And as they see one another also being, so to speak, carriers of God's Spirit, they can hardly help the sense that they should work together. How? Verse 27 says, be united in your action. The church church which is experiencing unity must be a church without passengers. You shouldn't just come and observe and leave. You're not just a passenger on the train. You're actually helping to run the train. Is there unity where there's a tacit or spoken attitude, hey, I agree with you, but I won't do anything for you? Or I agree with your aims, but I'm not going to go with you to fulfill them. Is that unity? Acquiescence is not unity. Consent is not cooperation. Approval is not partnership. Passively watching is not enough. Passively watching is not enough. Our unity in faith is agreement that leads us to working for one another. Our agreement about our aims in the gospel leads us to working with one another to fulfill those aims. Our unity in faith leads us to our cooperation and partnership in loving God, loving people, and loving our city. 
We've talked about that in a leadership retreat. One of the things that we've always held important is worship, community, mission. I mean, we talked about how to think about that in more nuanced ways. And so we said, look, worship is simply loving God individually. No doubt it's individually, but it's also corporately. It's not just loving God on your own in your quiet time, but it's loving God together through our actions, through our attitudes, through life, carrying one another's burdens, seeing the joy and the beauty of who Christ is together because there are parts of the beauty of God that we bring out uh, of one another that we can't bring out on our own, right? So we need to be united. We also need to be united in faith. In Christ, it says to one that we have comfort in love. That we're in Christ and we have comfort in love. We know the love of God, and that's the truest consolation. Look, if the Spirit dwells in you personally, we've said this before, that Christianity is not just a set of assumptions. It's not just a set of values that you operate by. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. It's a personal relationship with the living God. That's where God dwells in you richly. He teaches your heart things. He makes you new. He gives you new attitudes, new assumptions, new priorities, new ways of doing things. So we know the consolation because we are no longer separated. When we face the world alone, there's isolation. There's alienation, all kinds of alienation. We're alienated socially. We're alienated economically. We're alienated psychologically. We're alienated spiritually. The consolation in the gospel through our faith that we're united in is that God has taken that away. He's taken away our alienation. So the motivation for unity set out here is that all Christians should know the comfort that comes from belonging to the king's family, from being, as Paul puts it in a rather technical way, in Christ or in the Messiah. You're in family together. So we're united in spirit. We're united in heart and mind. We're united in our actions. And we're united in faith. How? Verse 27, we're to be united in what we believe and our experiences of what we believe about the gospel. Not only what we believe, but our experience of the gospel. Our experience of God himself working in us and through us. Whether the church goes out to bring others to faith or is viewed as a body of people holding certain things true, we all agree upon one thing, and that is to what the gospel is. Before anyone can preach or invite others to believe the gospel, we must know what to preach. And there's no agreement unless there is agreement as to what constitutes the gospel. The unity of the church is unity in in the faith and the experience of salvation. Tom Wright put it this way, Unity by itself can't be the final aim. After all, unity is possible among thieves, adulterers, and many other types. Those who commit genocide need to do so with huge corporate single-mindedness, as the Nazis showed when killing millions of Jews, gypsies, and others. What matters is that Christians, like the actors of an all-focused single-mindedly, all-focusing single-mindedly on the play, should focus completely on the divine drama that has unfolded before their eyes in Jesus the King and is continuing now into its final act with themselves as the characters, bringing their thinking into line with each other. Wouldn't be any good if they were all thinking something that was out of line with the gospel. 
The love that they must have is the love that the gospel generates and sustains. Their inner lives, which are to be bonded together, must be the inner lives that reflect the gospel. The same object which they must fix their minds on must be the facts about Jesus the Messiah, the meaning which emerges from them. So look, we're going to take a moment and summarize, and then we're going to think through how to pray through this together as a congregation. The first thing we covered is that we have unity in God's Spirit. And the key point is that God himself, God himself unites us to live and grow in the good things that are ours in him. This is not all there is. He's making things new, and he calls us to participate in that. Jesus has nail marks on his hands in the new heavens and a new earth. There's continuity between what we do here and what happens then when all things flourish. There's continuity between how we live together as a community and what we'll, how we'll be flourishing on the last day. It's like the stone put into the cathedral. We're going to stand back and admire the work that God allowed us to participate in as unique individuals. But we also, second, covered our unity in heart and mind, that one mind means more than just thoughts. There's a moral, uh, sort of a moral... Um, context for that. The key point is that in Christ we have mutual love, common interests, and agreed values. Third, we covered that our, we have unity in action. The key point is that Christ, we're not just bystanders, but actively involved in the life of the church. There's no just passenger in church. God has gifted you in very particular ways. And the church, as the church, we cannot be who we're meant to be unless you're actively involved with pouring yourself out in the ways that he's gifted you. You make us more of who we're meant to be. You make others more of who they're meant to be. So take time. Figure out what God has gifted you in. You can't do that without community. You can't say, hey, I think I want to be, you know, a famous chef but have no skills at cooking, right? So you need others' input on what your gifts are, how they can be used. And then you need to put them to work. We also covered that we have unity in our faith. And the key point is that we are united in knowing the love of God and his truest consolation together. That when we get up in the morning, we're not left to ourselves. We're not left on our own. He's made us part of a family. He's brought us in. He's called us sons and daughters. He's called us brothers and sisters of our elder brother, Jesus. It's extraordinary for people who were once alienated from him. How does this all fit with our faith in Jesus and what he's done? One thing you have to realize is that on the cross, Jesus was not united with others. He was not united with God. But he was left alone, isolated, alienated, so that you and I could have unity. And on the cross, Jesus faced the profound effects of self-love, self-interest, and discord so that we could share together right now in mutual love, common interests, and agreed-upon values. On the cross, Jesus was not a bystander, but he dug in on our behalf, and he stayed at the greatest cost to himself so that we could live like our elder brother Jesus and not be bystanders, but actively be involved with the life of the church. On the cross, Jesus went without experience the love of the Father or consolation so that we could be loved by the Father and consoled in this life and in the next. They already, but not yet. 
There's a famous catechism. You guys know what catechism is? Catechisms were devices used by the church for years to, number one, train their children to grow up in the faith, the basic sort of big picture. What is the big picture of the gospel? What is the big picture of what that means to us and how we live our lives together? And so there are many different kinds of catechisms. One is the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a very interesting one because it was written from a pastoral perspective. It was written to people who needed comfort in times of despair. And so it's, a beautifully, it's beautifully written. And this is what the very first question says. What's your only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Friends, that's a powerful answer. We need to live by that. We need to let that fuel us. God's Spirit unites us in the gospel in so many ways. And that unity provides witness, not only to ourselves, but to a watching world, that the world is not all you see. The brokenness out there is not all that you're faced with. All right, so where do we go from here? What are our next actions? I think first, so as we live life together in the gospel, we need to search out and grow deeply in the various ways God unites us. He unites us in his spirit. He unites us in heart and mind. He unites us in action. He unites us in faith. We need to search those out. We need to look for ways to be united even more. We need to take time to admire and adore our great God and Father. He doesn't leave us alone. He shows us his love and grace and peace, and he calls us sons and daughters and friend. We also need to confess the ways that we've forgotten that God works like this among his people. God didn't write these pages of the book that we're studying to individual Christian. He wrote it to people, to Christians from every age. We have to give thanks that Jesus faced the opposite of all those things on the cross so that you could engage them with fullness and faithfulness, living a life worthy of the king, So from here, as we go out together, as we prepare to live our lives, starting with Monday and going back to work, look for ways that you need to grow in unity and prayer and work for that and depend on God for that in prayer. That unity is found in Jesus. Let's come to him now. Heavenly Father, thank you for the unity that you bring through the power of your Holy Spirit, through the fellowship that you've given us. Bless us, Lord, as we get prepared to go out into the world as those who have been loved so faithfully by you, as those in whom you dwell with your spiritual presence, with your spirit, in whom we're being made new. We are not being left as we are. You've promised to complete the work that you've begun. You've promised to make us like you. And so we put the pressure of our salvation and living our lives as a reflection of that on the promises of your gospel and your great sovereign hand. 
You are our only comfort in life and death. It's in you that we rest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.